Well, if you would, would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you weren't here two weeks ago, uh, we started a four-part series this summer uh, going through that well-known section of Scripture that we call the Beatitudes. And so the Beatitudes, they are eight blessings that Jesus lists out, and he begins uh, them at the beginning of the probably the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And so one thing that I mentioned two weeks ago is that the Sermon on the Mount spans from chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew. And in it, Jesus, he talks about the kingdom of God and how we're to live as kingdom citizens. So there's a new regime coming. Uh, there's, there's change happening. It's the kingdom of God. And how does that affect the way that we live? And so the very first thing that Jesus does in this all-important sermon is he tells us what the blessed life looks like. He tells us what the happy life, the good life, looks like. And one thing that we said two weeks ago is that the blessed life, the good life, the happy life, uh, what does it look like? And we saw in the first three Beatitudes last week that the good life begins from a place of need. Uh, knowing that there's nothing in our hands that we bring, we simply cling to the cross. And so we looked at what it meant to be poor in spirit, mourners, the meek. We saw that good life may not be what we think it is. When we're looking at our worlds today, we think that the people on the top have the good life, and yet what Scripture says is those who have been made low that have the good life. And so remember the Beatitudes, that it's the Christian kingdom, it's opposite world, right? Things are not as they seem here. And so the good life, it doesn't begin with a lot of stuff. It doesn't begin with fame or power, but it's that acute awareness of our need. And so we repeated that refrain often, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We've been saying it all morning today, but we got nothing in our hands, that position of need. And so the good life, y'all, it can't be earned because we have nothing. It can only be received. And so that's the foundation for what the Bible says is the good life. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the next beatitude in that series. We're going to be looking at verse 6 today. And so if you would read along with me, I'm going to read the whole thing, but pay special attention to verse 6, because that's the beatitude that we're talking about this morning. So this is God's Word, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we seek His help to understand it? Father, we are small people, and we come to a text like this, and, and it may not be what it seems. We might be surprised by what we find here about what the happy life is. But Father, ultimately, as we said last week or two weeks ago, that this whole text is about you. It's about your son. And so, Father, we ask that you show us Jesus this morning. We ask that you illumine our minds, illumine our hearts. Father, send your Holy Spirit to help us understand this text. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. 
Well, uh, this week is my four-year anniversary here at Lawndale, and it's hard to believe that it's been four years already. It's been awesome. I've loved it. I've really enjoyed uh, being with y'all and worshiping with y'all. But it's kind of made me reflect back on when I was interviewing here. And so in my adult life, I had never been to Tupelo before. Uh, I went one time when I was a kid for a sister soccer tournament. I remember nothing about it. Uh, so for all intents and purposes, I knew nothing about Tupelo when I was interviewing here. But about a month before I moved, I came to visit and Rusty Waterer took me around town and drove me around and showed me a bunch of things. And so remember, I knew nothing about Tupelo as I'm driving with Rusty around town. And I start to think that all of Tupelo revolves around this guy named Elvis. So I drove through a neighborhood called Presley Heights. Uh, I, I saw these paintings of Elvis on sides of buildings. Uh, I drive past Fair Park and there's this huge statue of Elvis. Uh, you go to restaurants downtown and you look on the menu and they have things called like the Blue Suede Grill Sandwich at Cafe 212. Uh, there's posted in the windows of Tupelo Hardware Company uh, that this is where Elvis bought his first guitar. And to top it all off, when I came to visit with Rusty, it was also the Elvis Festival happening at the exact same time. And so there's these impersonators walking around, the arena's full of people. And so I thought, man, they love Elvis. I'd never listened to Elvis before, sorry. Um, but they love Elvis. Everything in town revolves around Elvis. You fast forward a month, my first week here, the first person that took me to lunch took me to Johnny's drive-in and we sat in the Elvis booth while looking at 100 pictures of Elvis in the restaurant. To me, it seemed like everything revolved around Elvis. And so because of that, that was my first impression of Tupelo. It seemed like everything had some kind of connection to Elvis. And so this is kind of how I view this beatitude this morning, the one in verse six. This particular one, this beatitude is the centerpiece of the whole beatitudes. Every other beatitude revolves around this one. They all reference it. The first three that we talked about two weeks ago, I, I call those the beatitudes of need, right? It's our foundation, it's our condition. The three after verse six, they're the beatitudes of deed. It's what you do, their actions. Then the last one is the result of all this. But it all centers around this one verse, Matthew five, verse six. It gets at the core of what the Christian life is. It's what happens when you come face to face with your sin. When, when you mourn your sin, when you're humbled by it. And so remember y'all, we are in opposite world here. Things are not what they seem. And so I don't want you to misunderstand what it's saying. And so let me read it by itself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so today, y'all only got two points for us. Two-point sermon. And so the first point that we have, is two things I think we can see from this passage. The first point is a deep desire, and the second point is a desire delivered. So a deep desire and a desire delivered. So would you look at our first point with me this morning, a deep desire. And so again, this is a wonderful verse. So remember, we're talking about the blessed life, the good life. Uh, this is the key to happiness, right? You want to know how I can be happy? Well, Jesus begins this sermon by saying, this is what the happy life looks like. 
And so after shocking us last week and taking us to opposite world, uh, we, we see that the, the key to happiness begins by coming low, right? And then now we see the next step, the next step. And it begins by saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, right? Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty. Now, if I had to guess, most of us have probably not experienced great hunger in our lives, I mean, the Great Depression was almost 100 years ago. Uh, World War II was 80 years ago. So we haven't really experienced the, the, the famine and the loss, most of us at least. We just haven't had those experiences. But y'all, several years ago, I made a terrible mistake. Uh, some friends invited me to go on a backpacking trip. And it was in the Appalachian Mountains. And so we planned to hike 26 miles in three days. And so here's the problem with that. I know that y'all look at me and you think rugged outdoorsmen, but the truth is I'm actually quite indoorsy. Uh, I love the inside. I love my air conditioning. And so I am not meant to go on 26 mile hikes in three days. And so here's what my days were like on this trip. Wake up, open a bag of freeze dried food, eat it like powder, right? Hike, stop and eat some trail mix for lunch hike, stop and set up camp and have dinner, which was, again, freeze-dried food. Uh, it was terrible. I know some of y'all, that's your dream, uh, but for me, that's like a nightmare. And so by the third day, I was so tired. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Lyndon's not here to, to chastise me. Um, but by the third day, y'all, I was so tired from not sleeping. I, I think the second night I gave up my sleeping pad because somebody didn't bring one. And I thought, I'll just sleep in a hammock. And that was not great at all either. Uh, but after the third day, I was so tired from not sleeping. And I was insanely hungry from just eating nuts and freeze-dried food. And so after leaving the park, we stopped at the first restaurant that we saw. And it was an Arby's. And like, I remember it to this day. I went in and I had the best meal I've ever eaten. I remember what it was. It was the Angus three cheese steak sandwich. Uh, it had uh, a peppercorn sauce on it and Swiss cheese. It was awesome. But in reality, it's just a subpar sandwich, right? It's, it's from Arby's. Um, but I was so hungry for real food. I, I was longing for something that would satisfy my hunger that that Arby's was just, oh man, it was so good. And so for a moment there though, I understood really what it meant to hunger for something, to, to hunger for something that would satisfy. And so when Jesus, when he talks here about hungering and thirsting, he's saying that it's this, this deep desire that we're to have. And so what are we to have this deep desire for? What is it we're to hunger for? Is it Arby's? Well, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for righteousness. Now, now, the Bible, it uses this word righteousness in several different ways, uh, but what it means here is just simply doing the right thing, or, 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 or rather, doing what God has told us to do in His Word simply because He tells us to do it. No other motivations. Doing what we're supposed to do because he's, we're told to do it. And so this is where it gets tricky for us, though, because if you're anything like me, it's easy to mix up righteousness with other things like respectability or reputation. This is what I mean by this. Like, I want to do good. Like, I really do want to do good things in my life. But sometimes 
I want others to know that I do good too, right? Sometimes I do things that are good, and I want people to know about it. And so this morning, this is a perfect example, like being up here in front of you. I'm often in front of people. I'm often leading worship and praying. And then there's times that while I'm praying in front of y'all, my mind can drift towards being worried about what everyone's thinking about what I'm praying about. You know, is this prayer good enough for everybody to hear? Like, we all do that if we're honest with ourselves. We want people to think that we do good things. We want people to think that we're doing good. And so the desire to pray, it's there. But somehow there's this involuntary desire that, that, that the people who hear me, I want them to think it's good prayer, right? I want them to see that I'm doing good. Or if I go serve with beds for kids, and I like text people, it's like, well, I can't come to that tonight because I got beds for kids in the morning, just so you know how good I am, right? Those ulterior motives that sneak in to our lives. And we all do this. If it's not prayer, it's something else. But, but notice what the beatitude doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for respectability. Right? It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because God cares about where our heart is in it. Right? He doesn't care about just the action of doing it for the sake of doing it, but He cares about our heart and our condition of it while we do what we do. So are we doing what God has told us to do simply because he said so? Are there other reasons? And so Jesus, what he says is that this, this righteousness, it's as essential for us as food and water is. Right? It's as essential to us as food and water. We have physical needs, but we also have spiritual needs. And our most basic spiritual need is this. It's righteousness. That's our most basic spiritual need. But anyone can be righteous, right? Anyone can love their neighbor, right? You don't, you don't have to be a Christian to love your neighbor. But for the Christian, it's something more than just loving your neighbor. It's righteousness is something that it's not just doing the right thing, but it's doing the right thing as an act of worship even. That, that when we love our neighbor, when we, when we do the right thing, when we practice righteousness, it becomes an act of worship for us. Uh, there's a theologian, y'all have heard me say his name a ton. I love him, Ian Duguid. He says it this way, if we're loving our neighbor as ourselves because it makes us feel good or because society expects us to love our neighbor or because our parents would have wanted us to love our neighbor, then we're not doing it as an act of worship to God. We are doing it as an act of worship to ourselves or to society or to our parents. Now, we all struggle with this because this is hard for us to do. It's hard to do righteousness rightly without, without other motivations creeping into it. And so this idea of righteousness is something that Jesus, he continues to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible still open, if you look down at verse 20 of chapter 5, he starts talking about the Pharisees and the scribes, and he brings up righteousness again. And this is what he says about righteousness here. Verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? If, if your righteousness isn't better than the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. And so here's the thing about Pharisees. They were very religious. They did all the right stuff. But they wanted everyone to see and so they would do things like pray on the street corners. They, they would fast and Sabbath and want people to admire their devotion to the Lord. 
They did a ton of good things. They kept the law. They kept it better than anyone else did. But they did it to be revered. They did it to be loved by their fellow neighbor and man. And so they were not the Pharisees. They were not hungry for righteousness because they were already filled with self-righteousness. They're not hungry for righteousness because they're already filled with self-righteousness. And the truth is that we're actually a lot more like the Pharisees than we care to admit. We're a lot more like them than we think. And I've already admitted that I can be, uh, tend to be worrying about what others think about me. And so that's not the only problem that we face here, though. The prophet Isaiah summed up our condition and what we read in our conviction of the gospel this, just a bit ago when he says, all our righteous deeds are like polluted rags. So even the good things, even the righteous things that we do, they're like dirty rags. Have y'all ever used a dirty rag before? Uh, I used to do some woodworking and, and I would stain the wood on the pieces that I would make. And I, and I hated using a brush because the stain would drip all over my hands. And so I started using uh, pieces of cloth. And so I'd dip the cloth in the stain and wipe it over the wood. And when I get done, I was left with this brown rag. Like it was unusable. And so I'd just throw them away. Right? That's what our good deeds are like. They're useless. They're, they're dirty rags. They weren't any good. Now, this is a huge problem for us. If we want to do good, and when we try to do good, we have all these other motives, but when we actually do something good, it's like dirty rags. That's a problem for us. We're told that the happy life is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so we need righteousness in our life, but at the same time, apparently even our best efforts don't qualify as righteousness. And so what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with this deep desire for something that we can't do? Are we just stuck in it? So I want us to feel that tension. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We need righteousness. We're to hunger and thirst for it, yet our righteousness is like dirty rags. So that brings us to our second point this morning. A desire delivered. Uh, so remember when I first told you about my first impression of Tupelo? Well, fast forward four years later, and I've seen a lot of awesome things about Tupelo that had nothing to do with Elvis, right? It's a wonderful town. But yet, there's also a lot of brokenness here in Tupelo. Uh, a few months ago, I'd gone to an event with Rob and Emily, who just came before the church uh, just a bit ago, and Rob knows a lot about the city. And so I was just asking, I said, what are some of the biggest challenges that Tupelo faces? And one of the first things he said was food insecurity. He, he means that, that folks in Tupelo, they may not know where their next meal is coming from. And so there are people in the city that are trying to fight this, that, that they're trying to, to fight back on this food insecurity. And one such is, those, is that ministry St. Luke Food Pantry we mentioned already this morning too. Uh, in St. Luke, every Thursday, they give away groceries for free, and it's something like 2,700 households a month that they give groceries to. And so in response to the sheer amount of hunger in the Tupelo area, the food pantry exists to alleviate that hunger and to feed people. So there's a point to this, though. Let's go back to our passage. The good news of the gospel, y'all, is that God has set up a righteousness food pantry for us to feed those that are hungry for righteousness. 
For anyone longing righteousness, God provides it. We couldn't earn it, so he did. And so he's provided not just a little hunger alleviation, but he's provided a whole feast of righteousness for us. And you're invited to eat, every single one of you. And this is all over the Bible, right? Uh, let me show you what I mean. If you, want, you can turn there if you want, but Romans 1.17, I'll just read it real quick. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice it doesn't say the righteous shall live by good deeds, but the righteous shall live by faith. And so this is a life-changing verse. So whose righteousness is it? It's the righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith for faith. Paul repeats it in Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So you start to see where this righteousness comes from. And there's always this link to faith. Not what we do, but what we believe, what we think, what we, what we trust. Or that verse is, is quoted in the NIV and it says the righteousness of God is given through faith. That, that, that we receive the righteousness of God through faith. Later in Philippians 3.9, it says, found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but where does it come? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we start to see that the righteousness that we're desiring, we can't do. We can't keep up with that. Remember, they're dirty rags, but yet God sent someone else to be righteous in our place. And so it's through faith that we access the righteousness of God, that we access the righteousness of Jesus. And so you see, if righteousness is doing what God wants me to do, but I can't do it, then this verse says that righteousness actually comes from God. And the people who are called righteous is not based on what they do, but it's based on what they believe, faith, right? That's what faith is. It's believing and so what this means through what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, those who have faith can receive righteousness. And y'all, it's a perfect righteousness. And they receive it absolutely free. Here, do good again. He says, the gospel is a great exchange program. All of our sins can be laid on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross while his perfect righteousness is given to us. All right? That wonderful exchange of the gospel, our sin put on Jesus, we, clothed, we are clothed now in Jesus' righteousness. And so this is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And so when he talks about having righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees, that's not the last time that he mentions righteousness in the sermon. If you look at chapter 6, verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and you will earn his righteousness. No, that's not what it says. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? Last week we said that, that we come receiving, not earning. And yet, now we see what it is that we're to receive. And that's the righteousness of God. It's, it's Christ's righteousness. It will be added to you. Seek it, and it will be added to you. And so Paul, again, shows this exchange well in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Jesus takes our sin. We take on his righteousness. And so it's in this exchange that righteousness is given to us 
through faith. And so it's not our righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. And it's through this that our relationship with God is restored. Right? We were separated from God. And now we've been brought back. This is exactly what happens when we receive the perfect gift of righteousness. It's a restored relationship with God. And so it's through trusting in the death of Jesus in our place for our unrighteousness that we're brought into God's family. And y'all, that's the greatest news of all. You can't get that kind of news at 10 o'clock. And so this is where it connects to the first three Beatitudes. The person who is poor in spirit, who's spiritually bankrupt, the one who mourns over their sin, the one who is meek, the empty, nothing in my hands I bring, they're now filled. They're now filled. And what it says in verse 6 is that they are satisfied. They're satisfied. But it doesn't just leave us there. What ends up happening is that God wants us to develop new righteousness within us. That yes, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're filled. But that righteousness that he fills you with is so wonderful that we're to hunger and thirst for more of it. We're to hunger and thirst for more of it. And so we have it. It's ours. It's perfect. It's complete. But we want more. Give me more. We hunger and thirst for it. And so there's a cycle in our lives of being filled by God and desiring more of it. And the more that we grow in grace, the more that we start wanting to do the things that God wants us to do. And so having been filled with a righteousness that's not our own, we hunger and thirst for more of it. And y'all, isn't this better than going about a checklist of rules to avoid some kind of taskmaster? Isn't that better? What good news this is for people like us. So let me close with this. How are we supposed to live like this? Like, what does this look like in 2023 in Tupelo, Mississippi, in our everyday lives, in our everyday callings? What does this look like? We have all these temptations. I still have sin in my life. I still sin. I don't want to, but I keep sinning. When I look around, when I see that the world is broken, how am I going to get through life like that? Well, let's look back at Matthew 5 and see. I'm not sure if anyone noticed two weeks ago, but when, when I preached through the first three Beatitudes, I didn't even mention the second half of the verses. Where it talks about that they'll be comforted. Look at what it says. It says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth, or, or maybe it better says, uh, they shall inherit the land. And then we get in this verse today that sh they shall be satisfied. So all of these clauses, y'all, they're talking about heaven. Uh, and I can give you a defense why they're talking about heaven, uh, but I'm not going to right here just because of time reasons. But if you want to talk, you want to know why is that talking about heaven, come talk to me afterwards and I'll tell you. But just trust me for now. Take my word for it that those ending verses, they're talking about heaven, right? When it says the kingdom of heaven, they shall be comforted, they shall inherit the land, and they shall be satisfied. So here's what the answer of the Beatitudes gives us on how we're to get through this life. It's we do it with a mindset towards heaven. Uh, you might have heard someone say, we do it like heavenly mindedness, right? Our minds are focused on heaven. Right now, Jesus, he's already won, right? The cross was 2,000 years ago. He died and he rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He's already won. He's conquered sin and death. He's bought salvation for his people through his blood. He's provided righteousness for us. And how we respond 
is we respond by conforming our lives in that growing in that grace, growing in grace in righteousness. And so, y'all, the best is yet to come for us. Like we have glimpses of good things today, but the best is yet to come. We have better days ahead of us. And Jesus in the sermon, he wants us longing for heaven to shape our attitudes in the way that we think. Uh, he wants us to live our lives with eternity in mind. Like C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we're made for another world. Like, we're to long for that heaven that's promised to us. So as we try to live out our desires, as we try to even figure out what our desires are, as we go about our lives, we're to live with heaven in view. Uh, eternity with God is something that should be our greatest dream. It, it should be our greatest desire and longing that we have. And so if we're that heavenly minded, then our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions, they'll start to become more conformed to his way. And so this is what sanctification is. It's the process of dying more and more to sin and becoming more and more like Christ. And so, y'all, is that what you hunger for? Is that what you thirst for? Is that where your deepest desires in life lie? That hunger for that type of righteousness can only be given to us by God. And so may we ask that he grants us that hunger for righteousness. And so last week, two weeks ago, my question for you was this. It was, will you come to God with need and receive the good life? Well, this morning I have another question for you. Is do you know that true satisfaction that's found in Jesus Christ? And have you had that need of yours filled with his righteousness? Let's pray.